Hey, Steminists, it's Emlyn Gremlin here with a quick announcement. You are currently listening to an older episode of Stem Vital, one in which we had not quite figured out how to turn the microphone on. So if the audio quality bothers you, I urge you to skip ahead to episode 17, where we are oh so crisp and oh so clean. That wasn't supposed to rhyme, but it just worked out that way. Okay, here's the app. Stem Fatal. Yeah, our Women in Science History <laughs> podcast. Yes, our Women in Science History podcast. And I'm Emlyn, like Gremlin. And I'm Emma, like Dilemma. And uh, I think we're just going to jump right into it. I tried yeah, to. As usual. I tried to come up with a, a fun question, an intro question, and I just. <sighs> I couldn't. But I have a question, I guess. Okay. Um, yeah, so I'll take it. So it's Pride Month. It is. So I wanted to find. <laughs> <That's not a laughs> no, no, wait, wait, wait. It's okay, a, okay. it's an intro to the question. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I wanted to find an LGBTQ plus yes, lady nice. scientist. Um, do you know of any off the top of your head? I do. Sally Ride. Okay, she's a, a astronaut, right? Yeah. Nice. And um, we're not talking about Sally Ride. <laughs> <laughs> the more, the merrier. I do know a couple others, but I'm blanking on names right now. It's all good. I, but now I'll know one more name. Yes, today, yes, you. Well, maybe. Okay. <laughs> what? Okay, oh. so uh, I was thinking you were going to say no. Oh, okay. So then it, <laughs> what I was going to say was that's not surprising, especially since oh. we are focusing on lady scientists who are primarily dead. Right. And they live during times when being out was a much more dangerous and controversial yes, yes, uh, thing to true. do. So we don't hear that about that many oh, women um, in science Rachel who are... Carson. Really? Yeah. Man. But that's someone who never officially came out. Yeah. had, like, anyway. Yeah, yeah. there's... So I, I was looking and I was trying to find... Um, there's a bunch of lists of, like, you know, LGBTQ scientists you should know about and stuff like that. And yeah. then I picked this woman... Yeah. And as I was kind of delving into it deeper, it's hard to tell. Like, she never openly came out. Right. And yeah. so it's, it's a lot of assumptions coded. being yeah. made. And yeah, especially for like a career woman, there weren't a lot of career women who were very open about their sexuality earlier yeah. on. So uh, today I'm talking about Louise Pierce. Oh, okay. I think I've have heard, heard her, of her name. Yeah. Okay. So. She turns up in a lot of articles about LGBTQ scientists. Oh, nice. Um, but we'll talk about this more later. It's really hard to determine if she was lesbian or bisexual or just kind of an advocate yeah. and had a non-normative you know, normative lifestyle. Yeah. Um, but we, what we do know about her is that she was a lesbian and bisexual advocate and that she was a very unorthodox woman. Aw, so, that's great. Um, are you ready? You ready yes, to hear about her? I am ready. Okay. I'm excited. So Louise Pierce was born on March 5th, 1885 in Winchester, Massachusetts, to Charles Ellis Pierce, a cigar and tobacco dealer, <laughs> and to Susan Elizabeth Holt. Oh. And then I just have a, a word and a question. I just have the word childhood, where I was hoping <laughs> to fill that no in. 
found literally no details. Oh, man. So just imagine Massachusetts. Yeah. The late 1800s. Yeah. Something about that. That's something where, like, if we had more time and money to be historians. Yeah. (laughs) And we're historians, not grad students. In science. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's information we could find in a library somewhere in the world. Yeah, somewhere. (laughs) But I couldn't find any books. I found a couple books that were, like, 25 women in science you should know about. And so there's a couple pages, but there's no, like, big biography where you can find a lot about her childhood. Right. But so she had a childhood. I assume so. Yeah, she was a child. Was an adult. At one point, she was a child. And then sometime before she turned 15, her family moved to a ranch in the Los Angeles area. Oh, nice. And the reason why we know that is because there are records that she attended the girls' collegiate school in Los Angeles. Oh, um, cool. Between 1900 and 1903. And then she attended Stanford University in Palo Alto. Oh, that's right. Um, yeah. Yay. And graduated with a BA degree in histology and physiology in 1907. Wow. So... Uh, histology is the study of the microscopic structure of tissues and cells. Right, right. Whereas physiology is the study of, I guess, normal functions of living organisms. So, like, a little bigger scale. And then, after graduation, Louise worked at Boston University School of Medicine as an instructor of embryology, study of embryos, and an assistant in histology. So, she's going back and forth between the coasts (laughs) when that's not very easy to do. Yeah, because planes? That is kind of intense. No planes. No planes. Wait, what year? This is... 1908. I'm going to say no planes. No planes, <laughs> but trains and automobiles. Trains. Yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, so, at Johns Hopkins... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Just, we know so little. I know. It's, it sucks. About sometimes. transportation, but, like, really, do we need to know that much about, like, historic transportation? Probably not, but it's one of those things where I feel like I just should know that somehow, yeah. like, and then as for, a person. And then for every time we say somebody moved, we have to be like, they drove, swam, <laughs> planed, I don't know. What did they Flapped do? their wings. Yeah. Louise worked at Boston University, and then in 1908, she attended John Hopkins University School of Medicine and obtained her MD. Ooh, wow. So... Uh, she got her MD in 1912, and she was the third in her graduating class. Oh, my gosh. And after receiving her MD, she served as an intern at John Hopkins Uni- uh, Hospital for a little bit. And then in 1913, Louise Pierce got a prestigious position as a staff member of the Phipps Psych- Psychiatric Clinic at Johns Hopkins Hospital. Wow. However, she did not want to do that <laughs> um, for probably multiple reasons. But yeah. Um, Dr. Pierce wanted to have a laboratory research position, so she didn't want to be a clinical, didn't want to have a clinical position, but she wanted to do some research. Yeah, like maybe she was dealing with patients and wanted just... A psychiatric clinic is probably... That's probably really hard. Yeah. So she wrote to this guy, Dr. Simon Flexner, director of the Rockefeller Institute of New York. Uh, and asked for a position, so you can oh. just just do that. And Dr. Flexner uh, <laughs> was impressed by her record, and he also desired a woman for his staff because it was an all male staff at that time. Oh, so he was like, 
she's super qualified. It would be nice to, you know, maybe yeah. have a lady. Um, so he hired her as an assistant fellow working directly under him, which sounds dirtier than it was, <laughs> at the Rockefeller Institute. She also worked with Dr. Wade Hampton Brown, who studied susceptibility and resistance of hosts to infection. Oh, cool. And together, Brown and Pierce, they pretty much Brown and Pierce worked together for the rest of uh, her career, and they used rabbits as a model organism to study trypanosomiasis. Oh, trypanosomes. Yeah. Uh, also known as African sleeping sickness. Yeah, right. So now we're going to go into the disease corner for a little bit. Ooh, fun. Yeah. yeah I love diseases. <laughs> Not in me. Yeah, or uh, in other people, but Just, the concept. Yeah, information about yeah, diseases. Yeah, they're fascinating and horrifying. Yeah. I think people love things that terrify them. <laughs> yeah. So, African sleeping sickness, African trypanosomiasis, which I'm just going to call sleeping sickness because trypanosomiasis is a very long word. It's caused by microscopic parasites, uh, more specifically flagellated protozoa, and is transmitted by a specific species of tsetse fly, which is found only in rural Africa. Right. And there are two subspecies of the parasite but I'm focusing on the West African sleeping sickness because it constitutes like 97% of oh all the cases. Gosh. I didn't so, know that. Wow. yeah, there's East African sleeping sickness, which from what I read, it progresses much, much faster. What? So, it's more deadly just because of how quickly it mm-hmm. kills somebody. And it mostly is zoonotic. So, cases are less oh. from person to person and more from animal to person. Oh my gosh. So, you scary. don't see it as often, but it's bad when you do. So, in West African sleeping sickness, the disease occurs in two stages. And the first stage is the hemolymphatic stage. Oh, no. Sounds bad. Hemo, blood, lymphatic, lymph nodes. And this stage causes intermediate fever, headaches, joint pains, itching, and swelling of lymph nodes. And this can go on for, it seems like, months. And the weird thing about the fever is you'll have a fever for a little bit, and then it'll go away, and you might think you're getting better, and then it, the fever comes back. No. So the second phase of the disease is the neurological phase, in which the parasites invades the central nervous system by passing through the blood-brain barrier. That this is that's not good. That's very bad. Yeah. So this stage causes a disruption in the 24-hour sleep cycle, which kind of gives it African sleeping sickness its name because it causes oh. a lot of daytime sleep, and then nighttime restlessness so they're just completely like out of sync and other symptoms of this stage include tremors confusion muscle weakness limb paralysis and psychotic reactions oh my god and then without treatment the patient falls into a coma undergoes (gasps) systematic organ failure and dies like almost 100 percent of the cases that's what happens without treatment so you can't fight it it will kill you unless you have treatment wow But, yeah, your internal system is not going to fight it. Oh, my God. So, usually, you die within three years of getting it. Three years? Yeah. Up to to seven years. But, yeah, slowly. I don't know how quickly you fall into a coma, but, (laughs) yeah. And then, if you treat it... Whatever neurological damage you have is irreversible. So the be- the faster yeah. you treat it, the better, because you can't get back that brain. Have they, like, um, dissected people's brains with 
the Disney's. <sighs> I would imagine see. so, but I did not yeah. look up anything about that. I would think like maybe they could do that to see what parts of the brain are responsible mm. for like circadian rhythm regulation a little yeah. bit. You know, because it's yeah. screwing up their sleeping problems, so maybe. I should have looked this up, but I didn't want to get too much into the disease. But there's something about these, there's something that these parasites produce that I think is a chemical that actually affects your sleep system and then causes you to go into a coma. Wow. I don't remember what it was, but. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah. Okay. So now we're going to leave disease corner and go back to Louise Pierce. So. Louise, Louise. (laughs) Yes, exactly. So at this time, sleeping sickness plagued many African countries, specifically the Congo, which was or was a Belgian colony at that time. Okay. And the Rockefeller Institute was trying to find a solution to sleeping sickness. So at this time, there was a big outbreak, and I couldn't find, like, death toll. Yeah. But a previous big epidemic of sleeping sickness between 1896 and 1906 caused between 300,000 and 500,000 deaths in Africa. Oh my gosh. So that's kind of the context of where she, when she's working, is after this has occurred. And previously, Paul Elric discovered that an arsenic compound was effective as a treatment for syphilis. Huh. And so this caused Dr. Flexner, the head of the Rockefeller Institute, and colleagues to try to find other arsenic compounds that could be used for African sleeping sickness. Wow. But isn't arsenic a poison? Yes. Wow. But I think, so there was something about arsenic, certain components of it, it seemed could pass into the brain and so then fight, then be toxic to where the protozoa were or where the the disease was maybe if you don't take like too much of it it's not toxic yeah super toxic to you yeah so they then they found in 1919 uh dr jacobs and dr heidelberger found a compound called triparsamide so triparsamide trypanosomiasis very similar i'm guessing they named it because it after the trypanosome yeah They found this compound and they isolated it. And then they found that it was highly effective in destroying the infectious agents of sleeping sickness known as trypanosomes. Yeah. Which are called, yeah, called sleeping sickness. And triparsamide could reach the cerebrospinal fluid in considerable concentrations. And once it got into your cerebrospinal fluid, it could kill the disease because that's where it was. Really cool. Yeah. However, this has not been tested on humans yet. Oh. So gotcha. they'd only done this in rabbits okay. and found, oh, great, we can get rid of African yeah. sleeping sickness in rabbits. And so in 1920, a severe outbreak of African sleeping sickness occurred in the Congo. And originally, the Rockefeller Institute wanted to send Dr. Brown to the Congo to test this new drug. However, Dr. Brown was a family man uh, and wasn't very interested in going. And so Dr. Pierce, on the other hand, was attracted to the idea of field research and adventure. Aww. And so she volunteered to go. Nice. And so this wasn't like she went as the head of something. She went alone to oh the Congo as a woman uh, to test this new drug. So while in the Congo, she studied the effects of this new drug on over 70 patients. And I couldn't find out any details about if this was voluntary or... You know, how they figured out who to 
yeah. test this on or anything about like the scheme of that. Oh. But since the disease is pretty much 100% yeah, maybe deadly. infected people were like, I'll please, try please, anything. please. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, so this drug could only really increase your chances of surviving. Wow. I feel like back in the day when people tested things on humans, <laughs> you're always like, mm, maybe that doesn't fly. But in this case, it could only increase your survival. I test a lot more stuff more readily. Yeah, just inmates, <laughs> orphans. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Anyway, so. So what Dr. Pierce observed when she had tested this new drug on these patients was complete eradication of the parasite in both the blood and nervous system in only a matter of weeks and with seemingly no side effects at low doses. Wow. So I found different results, but this treatment was between 80% and 90% effective in getting rid of African sleeping sickness from the body. So it was super, super successful. And this was the first treatment for African sleeping sickness. And so this work won her international acclaim and drew the attention of Belgian officials um, because they they solved a big problem. Yeah. And they, they were like, how can we take over this land if yeah. there's this terrible <laughs> disease? <laughs> uh, and they awarded her the Ancient Order of the Crown in oh 1921, which is one of Belgium's highest honors. <sighs> Do they still have royalty in Belgium? Mm-hmm. I think wow. so. That's all the information I have. Yeah, I mean, I don't know anything yeah. about Belgium. And she was also elected as a member of the Belgian Society of Tropical Medicine. And from then on, wow. every, every year from 1921 to 1939, she traveled to Europe to attend scientific meetings and other scientific activities as part of this. That's cool. Yeah. So she then returned to the Rockefeller Institute and was promoted to associate member in 1923 so i guess they don't have like professors because they're not teaching they're researching and so they just have like they're called members okay so her accomplishments should have from one one source i found which is the only source that talked in depth about her at all her accomplishments should have qualified her to be a full member with more freedom but due to the great depression the rockefeller institute didn't have enough funds to promote her at that time wow However, even after the Great Depression, she never made it to full member. So, I don't, I don't have any information about like why, why that was, but yeah, I guess like my first thought would be that she's a woman. Yeah, and as a, an associate member, you were always. It seems like from when I was reading, you're always under some other professor. I see. So she yeah. was never an independent. That sucks. Yeah. So, in 1924, she was elected to the Royal Society of... Did I just say that? No, no. I said the Belgian Society. She was also elected to the Royal Society. The Royal Society of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene. Oh, okay, okay. And also in... Is that in Belgium? No, I think this was UK, but I'm not positive. And then in 1924, she returned to Africa. I'm guessing back to the Congo, though I couldn't find any specific information on that to conduct even larger trials. And in this visit, she confirmed that triparsamide was effective in humans even at late stage of infection, which they hadn't tried yet, but that there were 
side effects when giving large doses at these late stage. Oh, okay. So large doses had been used for treatment in advanced cases of African sleeping sickness, but had resulted in damaged vision and even blindness in some cases. So it's bad to wait. Yeah. So at this time she urged her departmental head, Dr. Flexner to end these trials and to just begin widespread treatments of the disease. And so he agreed, and so once the widespread treatment of the disease began, she served as the contact for physicians conducting more trials and also as a medical consulting delegate for the International Conference of Christian Missions in Africa. So she was kind of in charge of overseeing all of these treatments of trypana... What what is it? Really cool. Triparsamide. And it was so hard to find. I kept trying to find, like, how many people got treated... And, you know, how many lives did this potentially save? And she has a paper in science where she kind of catalogs how many people they, in Africa, they actually kind of brought in and tested for this disease. And it seems like at least six million people they tested. Oh, my God. And then a couple hundred thousand people they treated. Wow. And I don't have any more specific, but... Yeah. So they treated a huge number of people. At least, like, I'm sure they saved thousands of lives. Yeah, probably hundreds. Like, especially if it's hundreds of thousands that they're treating, and it's 80 to 90% effective. Yeah. So... That's pretty incredible. But, yeah, I was surprised I just couldn't find... Yeah, it's... I mean, I'm sure, like, most people here didn't care that much. And there weren't people really documenting it. But it's good that she cared and, like, wanted to get this out there to treat people. Yeah. And also, she's also putting herself in danger because... Yeah, she could get the disease. Yeah, she could definitely get the disease. And she was going alone, which is... I know. I don't even like to leave my apartment alone. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that is really... So, in 1930, her work on these... Uh, trials and of the these treatments that they were giving in mostly the Congo, but also places, other places in Africa, were published in 1930 titled The Treatment of Human Trypanosomiasis with Triparsamide, <laughs> a Critical Review. Uh, um, and then during this time, she was back in New York City. Oh, this is our new section. Well, our old section. So she came back from Africa. She wrote up this big report on what she had found. Yeah. And then she moved on to syphilis. So this is a returning segment of the program, Keep Your Junk Safe. (laughs) We haven't seen it in a while. I forgot we even had that segment. I was like, the trivia section? Like, it's kind of the whole podcast is a trivia section. (laughs) No, Keep Your Junk Safe. We need a good theme song for Keep Your Junk Safe. Oh, that could be so good. Um, okay, we'll, we'll think about this. Yeah. Put your junk in that box! Oh, <laughs> uh, sorry, Mom. <laughs> uh, good thing we have the explicit rating. Yeah. Okay, so, during this time, when she came back from Africa, Dr. Pierce collaborated with Dr. Brown to study syphilis. And, uh, syphilis infection in the nervous system at this point was untreatable. Ooh. The nervous system is the third stage of syphilis because there's like these three stages. There's one where you have a sore, stage two where you have a rash, and stage three when it gets into your nervous system. So I don't know if they had treatments for one and two 
and then they didn't have a treatment for once it got to stage three. Okay. But regardless. Yeah. So Dr. Pierce and Dr. Brown used their rabbit model system to study the effect of the same drug, uh, triparsamide, on syphilis as well. Oh. And they knew that triparsamide was able to penetrate the brain and nervous system, and so they thought that potentially this drug could also kill the syphilis uh, spirochetes that oh, were in the okay. nervous system. It's a bacteria. Yeah, it's a bacteria. Yeah, it's just... They proved that this drug as well, in combination with an artificial fever, I just have in parentheses, what? Like uh, they... Heated someone up really hot? I think so. I was reading things, and before they would give someone some type of malaria, like inject them with, I would imagine, some partially dead malaria to get them to have a fever response. So kind of like a vaccine. Like they're trying to get the immune system to respond. Yeah. Yeah. And heat. Because apparently having... Um, a strong fever was a good way right, to can kill, can kill yeah. yeah syphilis. So triparsamide combined with an artificial fever was a successful method for treatment of syphilis. Now I feel like I don't hear about that anymore, <laughs> which maybe you'll explain. Like no, I probably I guess I won't. I don't know anyone with syphilis, but also I've never like heard of uh, someone like taking a hot bath. Yeah, I don't think you can just take a hot bath <laughs> oh, and get okay. rid of your syphilis. I think it's a little gotcha. more in-depth. Yeah. But, um... Go to the sauna or something. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to the sauna to clear my syphilis. Yeah. I'll be better I'm by morning. Play, please leave please, the sauna. Yeah, please don't go in the public oh, sauna no, to clear sorry. your syphilis. Not trying to shame. No, but that seems like a bad idea. Yeah, no. Okay, so this treatment for syphilis was used until the discovery of penicillin. Oh, okay. By Alexander okay. Fleming. Yeah. And so then that's what they use. Okay. Yeah. I see. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So Pierce studied syphilis in rabbits and found that one rabbit had a malignant tumor of the scrotum Ouch. <laughs> that could be successfully grown in other rabbits. <gasps> Ooh. A little callback? Yeah. Oh, yeah. This will be. To Sarah Elizabeth Stewart? Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. So Pierce studied what factors affected the susceptibility of a rabbit host to these implanted tumor cells. So what were the factors that caused a rabbit to be more susceptible to getting these tumor cells to successfully implant? And this well-characterized tumor was called the Brown-Pierce tumor, or carcinoma, and became a popular cell culture in the study of cancer. That's great. Yeah. Good job, rabbit balls. So cool. She has a tumor named after her. Yeah. After the rabbit testes. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Is scrotum? The skin around. Okay. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It's the sac. <laughs> Is that not a good term? Well, I have to tell my mom not to listen to this episode. <laughs> I just told her last night, like, yeah, have a listen. You might like it. Or, like. And I think she told, like, my cousin's kids to listen, like, teenage kids to listen. Well, they know what a, they need to know what a scrotum is, too. <laughs> yeah, and this is the best way to learn yeah, about it. It's actually partially sex ed class, partial women in history. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, after, after these rabbit tumors, okay, so in 1931, Dr. Pierce went to the Paiping Union Medical College in Peking, now known as Beijing, 
as a visiting professor of syphilology. And syphilology (laughs) is the study of the diagnosis and treatment of syphilis. Yeah. Yeah. So Dr. Pierce traveled to China with 125 rabbits infected with syphilis uh, in order to compare the Western... How did she transfer all I don't rabbits? know. <laughs> this is why maybe it is important that we know if it's plane or train or plane automobile. Or train or boat. Probably or... boat. Wait, she was traveling from where to where? From, from New York. To... Beijing. Gotta be both. Yeah. With 125. <laughs> Wait, and this was what year? 1931. We definitely have planes, but I don't know if we have commercial planes. Yeah, that's a. I mean, I feel like all those rabbits would be a little heavier. <laughs> <laughs> so many she diseased just bought, rabbits. Like, all the seats on a plane yeah. for each little simplest <laughs> rabbit. <laughs> It'd be, like, kind of cute yeah. and really sad yeah. at the same time. So, yeah, so she brought all these rabbits in order to compare the western strain of syphilis with the eastern strain. Wow. But her work in China was cut short by civil wars raging in China. Right. And at this time, Japan had invaded Manchuria, and many of her fellow visiting professors had been sent to Shanghai for safety. And so uh, Pierce returned home. But what she did find was that the syphilis strains were the same, but the rabbit species were different. Wow, that's <laughs> funny. Oh my gosh. Okay, so she returned home. Yeah, so Pierce and Brown's experiments on rabbits were severely set back when a smallpox-like disease decimated her rabbit colonies. That sucks. Yeah, that's bad news. However, on the on the flip side, <laughs> they determined that with the aid of Paul Rosehan... Harry Green, and C.K. Hugh, that the disease uh, was caused by a virus and that it was actually a great system to study human smallpox. Oh. So they had a paper out, you know, studying human smallpox. How did the rabbits get smallpox, do you think? It's very good. It's airborne. Oh, yeah, that's true, I guess. Smallpox is a terrible, terrible thing. I'm so glad it's gone. Except it's still here. There's two vi- Did you know there's two vials of smallpox, or two stocks of it, mm-hmm. and one is in Atlanta at the CDC, and one is in a Russia. research center in Russia? Yeah. I was like, re- that is so fucked up. Well, apparently there's also... So that's those are the official ones. Right. And that there's probably... Because, yeah. like, a bunch of labs across the world had them, and yeah. then they're... Like, the U.S. and Russia were like, you need to give us all of your smallpox. Which is, like... And the people were probably like, like, no. nuclear bomb, basically. Yeah. So, like, there's probably people who still have smallpox Smallpox, somewhere. Well, the virus, not the... Yeah, they don't have the disease, but there are probably stores of the culture of... But, I mean, we have enough vaccine to treat most people. Do we? If there's an outbreak. Not everyone, but if there's an outbreak, we can treat it. It's good to know. Yeah, like, yeah, we have like a huge stockpile of the of the smallpox vaccine. That's good. Excellent. Anyway, just trying to scare. <laughs> yeah, nobody worry with things we shouldn't have to worry about. Yeah. Okay. So they, we learned things about smallpox from these rabbits, right? And then in 1935, Brown's research group. 
with Dr. Pierce, moved to a new facility at Princeton uh, that was still part of the Rockefeller Institute. Oh, cool. However, Dr. Brown became ill and had to downsize his projects. And because Dr. Pierce was under kind of the supervision of Dr. Brown, she's still not independent, that negatively affected Dr. Pierce's research. Mm. So, because she had to downsize her stuff then, too. And then in 1942... Dr. Brown died, and Dr. Pierce finished his uh, experiments and papers after his death. However, okay, so five years later, in 1945, Dr. Pierce was asked by the Rockefeller Center to conclude her experimentation, and was granted three years full pay to write up all of the results. And then she was followed by half pay until her retirement. Couldn't find anything else about that. Weird. So I don't know... Like, if she was working half-time, or... Yeah, I don't know the context of this at all. If they were just like, all right, well, you only get half pay, because we're not letting you do any more experiments. Yeah. Or if she was doing other things. Huh. Yeah, so I don't know if that... How sketchy that is. Yeah. And then she retired, I think, in 1951. Wow. Throughout her career, Dr. Pierce was a supporter of women's rights and of women's education. Nice. And from 1946 to 1951, she was the president of the Women's Medical College of Pennsylvania and was the director of the American Association of University Women. Wow. In 1953, she was awarded the King Leopold Prize of $10,000 by Belgium. Okay, so now I'm going to get into some of her personal life. Okay. And the little bit of it that we know. Yeah. So Louise Pierce was a part of a radical feminist organization... Hell yeah. For unorthodox women. Oh. That's what they, that's what, that was, if you wanted to be part of this, you had to say that you were an unorthodox woman. Um, And they were known as heterodoxy, and it was in Greenwich Village. And heterodoxy was notable in that it provided a forum for more radical concepts of feminism than the suffrage and women's club movements of the time. Interesting. So some of the women in the group's you know, they were bisexual, they were lesbian, they had divorced their husbands, they had kept their maiden names, they had, you know, yeah. some other ideas besides just kind of voting rights and stuff right. like that yeah, that they were basic. promoting. Right, yeah. Yeah. So that were a little more controversial than the larger suffrage movement was about. Yeah, that makes sense. Group members considered themselves heterodites, and many were, as I said, bisexual or lesbian, and in 1917 and 1918 suffrage protests, four heterodites were arrested and served time in the Occoquan workhouse, in jail, or in prison psychiatric wards. No. Yeah. Because, of course, you have any woman that's uprising or speaking her mind, and then you put her in a psych ward. That's awful. Of, um, hysteria. Yeah, yeah hysteria. Yeah. So there is one book that I'll, I'll post that I didn't have time to read. That's about heterodoxy oh, and the cool. and the like feministists the in it. Yeah. yeah, about this movement. And yeah, it was actually like they met that. they met during it was like a weekly luncheon. So it sounds really hardcore, but it was also very you know. Yeah. At lunch, <laughs> it wasn't like you know rocking out at night. Oh my gosh! So little else is known about this organization because one of the founding principles of heterodoxy was the formal prohibition of press and official documentation. Because they were so radical that they didn't want to jeopardize. And, and a lot of them were radical and also scientists or doctors yeah, or professionals. authors, professionals. So they, 
you know, didn't want to have anything tying them to very radical feminist ideas. So although there is very little known about her private life, besides being part of this group, she did live with two other women, uh, physician Sarah Josephine Baker. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, wait. Okay. That's who I've heard of. Yeah. And I didn't realize that they were in her relationship. Maybe. Oh, I see. Yeah. So she lived with uh, physician Sarah Josephine Baker. And Sarah Josephine Baker is one of the people who found um, Typhoid Molly. Yeah. Typhoid Typhoid Mary. Mary. Yeah, she found Typhoid Mary. Molly. (laughs) Her younger sister, who's just rolling. (laughs) And she also lived with author Ida Wiley, who is a pretty famous author, or was a pretty famous author at the time, and went only by her initials because she didn't want to you know, be besmirched for being an author that was a woman. Oh my gosh. So all of these members were part of heterodoxy. So all three of them were heterodoxy members. And when Louise Pierce moved to Princeton, Baker and Wiley also left New York City and moved in with her at Trevana Farm that was in Skillman, New Jersey. And although Baker, uh, Josephine Baker died in 1940. Five. Pierce and Wiley continued to live together on the farm, and Dr. Pierce fell ill on an ocean liner on her way home from Europe and died on August 9th, 1959, in New York City. And Dr. Wiley died three months later. And Wiley and Pierce were buried together on Travana Farm. So, you don't really know what their relationship was, no. or with Josephine Baker, no. but Wiley, she wrote a biography and talked a lot about how she did not, she liked women a lot more than men, and, like, kind of went on. So it's a little more clear that she was probably more interested in women than men. But what all three of their relationships were, besides being badass ladies, it's hard to know. But very supportive of LGBTQ. That's good. And, yeah. Yeah. So. Wow. So that's. I want to read more about this group. Yes. incredible. It sounds like a great read. I'll have to, I'll throw it up on the Um, website. Yeah. Yeah. Because I don't remember what it's called, but... Yeah, so that's Louise Pierce. Wow, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh, she sounds pretty cool. Yeah. Is African sleeping sickness not super prevalent anymore, but it's still... Mm. You can still contract it, right? There's... Yeah, you definitely can. And it's a rising... Pro- from what I was reading, I didn't get too much into, like, um, modern issues. Well, and there yeah. was a lot of different numbers, but, like... There were some articles that said that there was, like, 48,000 deaths in 2008 from African sleeping sickness. And that that's gone down, but now it might be going back up. But then other sources I found seemed to make it seem like it wasn't that high. Yeah. So I don't quite know, but it definitely is still a big problem. Yeah. Yeah. She must have, like, really just cared about people and, like, wanted to help people. Yeah, I would really love to know more of like what drove her to want to be a doctor and yeah yeah especially any quotes from her i looked up quote i was just trying i was like louise pierce quotes and then it was just quotes from a bunch of men unrelated (laughs) because they were just like oh you want quotes must have been hard to become for her to become a doctor even like most women were nurses in that time yeah now it's like i mean not as hard for women to become doctors, yeah. but it's just, like, a more male-dominated field. For sure. Yeah, there just wasn't enough information to even figure out, like, how many struggles she went through. Yeah. Um, 
but yeah. but she yeah. was definitely cool. cool. Yeah. Very cool lady. And work, 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 work. this is our next section, the women who work. Yeah, where we give some shout outs to current ladies of science making her series today. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Are you ready, Emily? I'm so ready. Um, Take me away. <laughs> Take me away. What song is that? That sailing song. Sailing. (laughs) I can't listen to this again. (laughs) I don't know why I sing so much on this podcast because I hate listening to myself sing. You don't know the sailing song? No. Okay. I know sail. It's a good summer song. (laughs) (laughs) Sail. No. Different song. What is a take me away song? Sailing. No, not this. <laughs> Take me. Okay, anyways. Take me Take away. Take me to church? Yes. Take me to science. <laughs> Take me to women at work. No. Take me to work, 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 work. No, 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 okay. Whatever. <laughs> I'm so over myself. Okay, wait. So, shout outs this week. Yes, tell Are me. Are you ready? We've, we have verified that I am ready. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You want me to take you away. Yes. Okay. They go to two efforts coordinated by the amazing members of the 500 Women Oh, nice. Group. Yeah. Awesome. Um, and you might have seen both of these, but I just wanted to, like, shout out this group and a couple of the cool things that they're doing for anyone that's interested in, like, getting involved. So 500 Women Scientists is a grassroots organization founded by four female scientists, and their mission is to, uh, quote, serve society by making science open, inclusive, and accessible, which is a pretty good mission. Yeah, I agree. They have all sorts of different campaigns and local groups around the world that are all working to support that mission mm-hmm. um, in a ton of different ways. So, But I'm just going to highlight two of their campaigns from this week. So one, I think we retweeted this, but on June 2nd, the group held a Wikipedia edit-a-thon. Oh, yes. I loved really this. fun. Yeah. Um, in New York City, where a bunch of them got together and worked for a few hours to edit or produce Wikipedia pages for female scientists. And they, like, wrote pages for even, like, current scientists like Francis Cologne and Lynn Riddiford. And while that event is over, I'm, I think you could just do this anytime. Yeah. If you wanted to. Yeah. And if you know how to edit Wikipedia pages. if you know facts. Yeah. If you have, like, good sources or, yeah, just see that someone's Wikipedia page isn't filled out when it could be. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I just wanted to kind of encourage anyone listening, I don't know, to go ahead and and contribute if you can. Um, And so I thought that was really cool. And another thing that they just started, or one member of the group, Dr. Lauren Esposito, just started an offshoot campaign called 500 Queer Scientists. Yes, I've seen this. Yeah, which has the vision to increase visibility for LGBTQ plus people and their allies working in STEM and STEM-supporting jobs. 
And the goals of this campaign specifically are to ensure the next STEM generation has LGBTQ role models. They want to help the current generation recognize they're not alone. And they want to create a database that facilitates diversity among speakers and panelists, mm-hmm. which is a lot of the same things 500 women scientists yeah. have done. But that's just so much bigger. And now they want visibility for queer scientists. It's um, awesome. It's yeah. a good time to do it. It is part of time. June. Yeah. And Lauren Esposito herself is a really cool um, assistant curator and Schlinger Chair of Arachnology at the California Academy of Sciences. I know you can't help yourself with arachnology. No, I can't. Yeah, you love love it. And she's also the co-founder of a science education and conservation nonprofit called Islands and Seas. Ooh. And her research is on the patterns and processes of evolution in spiders, scorpions, and their venoms. Oh, very cool. So she is just badass. Yeah. And she's, like, now doing this whole new campaign. Super important. So anyone can support the campaign by sharing it or posting about it on their own social media. And we'll give you links to their Twitters and Instagram online. Yeah. And if possible, and if you want to, you can also submit your own story. So right now they're, like, gathering stories from LGBTQ scientists. Mm -hmm. Um, just to make these scientists, like, more visible to everyone. Just knowing others are out there that are like you, I think, is really helpful in staying in science careers. Definitely. So those are my shout-outs for the week. I love it. Yeah. They're great. Yeah, I've been seeing those a lot on Twitter. Yeah, and It's a great campaign. Yeah. That's awesome. Oh. Yeah, so I guess that's our sode. Yeah, our, <laughs> our total sode. Uh, if you like the show, please, please, please... Rate, review, subscribe to us on iTunes. This is really important to help other people find our show. And you can find us on Twitter. What did I say? Twitter. Twitter. (laughs) At StemFatalPod and on Facebook now at StemFatalPod. And you can email us too at StemFatalPod. Yeah. At gmail.com. And thanks to our theme song, our... Thanks to... <laughs> thanks to the song itself. Yeah, thanks to... Thank you, Mary Anning theme song uh, by Artichoke. And our cover art is by Caitlin Friesen, so yeah. thank you. I think that's it. That so, it. Stemulator? Yeah, Stemulator. Stemulator. By circa 1820, she ran a fossil store. She put the bones together for...